When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 3, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is time to look back and reflect on Novak Djokovic's terrific 2023 season, as well as uh, shift attention to some news about Rafa Nadal that's come up as of late. We have a return date, Brisbane next year, and some training footage as well. Uh, but we'll start with Novak. And by the way, the 60 Minutes interview with John Wertheim, we'll also get to that when it comes to Novak. Uh, but let's uh, let's put a bow on this incredible, incredible season. Joel, how incredible? I want to start there. Where does this season stack up within uh, Novak Djokovic's career for you, Joel? Well, it's amazing. Novak has had several years where he's won three or more majors. But then to do this at 36, the age of 36, to reach all four finals and um, kind of reassert himself as number one in the world, uh, right up there. I mean, I, I I'm reluctant to to rank it because you look at 2021 when he was only 34 and and reached all four finals and only lost in the finals of the U.S. Open to be denied a calendar year Grand Slam. So to me, it is just an amazing, incredible achievement and shows yet again how. Um, how brilliant a tennis player he is and how he continues to even, as we all noted through this period, he wasn't just kind of backing his way or, you know, he was fit. He was more fit than a lot of his opponents. He added parts to his game. He's improved parts of his game. Just tremendous. I would say it's, if not the best, then certainly tied for the best, given what Joel said, his age, and how close he came to winning Wimbledon. I mean, that was a close match. So he very well could have won the calendar slam this year. And just how he managed his time, his body really didn't um, have many injuries to speak of that were significant, that would... um, make him miss a a grand slam. So uh, just a tremendous year player of the year and, Mm -hmm. and really um, regained his momentum as a sportsman as well. in the, in the larger picture. Eighth year end number one, won almost 90% of his matches, which is rare air. If he, if he didn't play Davis cup, he would have ended above 90%. And uh, he also passed Nadal this year. Uh, in the in the slam tally. So, you know, historically, there were obviously plenty of milestones. I think it's pretty easy to make an argument that it's the most impressive year of Novak Djokovic's career. Harder to make an argument that statistically it's his greatest ever because there have been other years where he's done more winning outside of the majors. But here's where I would make the statistical argument that, that it might be uh, his best year. I would say... It's the dominance of, it's the dominance at the big events, not just that he won it because Joel, as you pointed out, there have been other years where, you know, he's won three majors in the year end championship before, but, um, something that I, that I noticed when I was looking at uh, performance of the year for the Monday match analysis awards, where, um, 
I basically try to think of what performance, usually it's a blowout. What performance was like the most dominant, impressive performance? And if there's a straight set win in a major final, usually that gets it because you, you played pretty darn well if you won in straights in a major final. Novak won all three of his major finals this year in straight sets. And he beat Sinner at the year-end championships in that final in straight sets, which is actually w- what I gave the award to. Plus, he was only one set away from winning Wimbledon versus in 2021 when he didn't win a set in the U.S. Open final against Medvedev. So it's the uh, the cleanliness and the dominance in which Novak won those finals. That's my argument for this year. If you want to kind of make your thesis that this was his best year ever. That's cool, right? That can I can go with that. The other point I make, though, about 21, he won the first three and then got to the finals of the fourth. And so I'm not, I, I will never go with the, well, if only, if he'd won that Wimbledon, ergo, he would have, if he'd won the Wimbledon, we have no idea what he would have done at the US Open. True. But yeah, this is all the kind of chatter back and forth. They, these are some incredible years. And let's look, and he, and he'll, he'll probably then remind, don't forget way back in 2011 when he'd only won one major and he surfaced and he won three at that stage. I mean, he's had, and, and 2015 where he only lost the French final, have multiple years of three slam wins is amazing. I mean, that's just this. And then, so that's 12 slams in those years. And then another 12, I mean, it's just, just tearing up the record books. All right. Let's start. Let's start remembering Amy. Let's go back to, uh, to January in Australia where uh, he starts his year and uh, it wins a, an amazing, amazing run in Adelaide. He, he crushes Daniil Medvedev. Medvedev hadn't quite regained his form at that point and wins this epic uh, three-setter against Sebastian Korda, but he hurts himself in that Korda match, and the Australian Open was, uh, you know, yet another slam that, you know, Novak's uh, battle through, like, a physical injury was kind of the dominant uh, storyline, especially in the first week, is, oh, wow, is is this hamstring thing that he picked up going to give him, you know, prevent him any chance of winning the Australian Open? That hamstring got better, and then he started <laughs> mowing opponents down. Like, it was so dominant. Uh, what do you remember most? What sticks out to you about that Australian Open? Well, I also remember that it was his return to Australia, and there was a lot of controversy um, leading into the the previous year, and um, that mentally he would have to be have it together. And, you know, motivation um, would be a factor. And um, he really played it cool. And I really felt that, I mean, damage control is a bad, that's not really what I mean, but he did a good job of quelling the voices and the controversy around him and holding it together. And I mean, Anyone who's ever played tennis knows that if something happens that off the court that's bothering you, it can so easily seep onto the court. And he figured out a way to just quiet his mind. And he talks a lot about that in the 60 Minutes interview. And that's, you know, the, the aspect of Novak that is probably my favorite thing. Well, while we're on that, that was going to be the part I was going to bring up from the 60 Minutes interview because I thought it was so impressive him talking about it. This is a skill. This is yeah. a skill. You train yourself. And that's something I think players, 
that every single playing level can work on, can make better. That's not a technique. That's not a footwork. That's not a fitness. Well, it's a certain form of fitness. It's a mental fitness, but it's not a, um, you know, it's not something that requires the ability to wield a, a 13 ounce racket or, you know, hit the ball. It's something we can all build ourselves. And the fact that he said that he, he kind of said, Hey, I'm a human being mm-hmm. stuff hits my head and how he's learned to train himself and be so disciplined through that. And obviously this Australia was the, the first big test of that in 2023, returning to Australia. He knew there was going to be a lot of uh, outside the lines attention and coverage. And there was, and lots of stuff going on and he weathered it. Totally agree with everything you both said. What I'd add is uh, the tactical part of it, which was that when his movement was compromised, he did get more aggressive, especially on his forehand. Best I've ever seen him hit his forehand was that Australian Open. And then the thought was, okay, so he did that. Is that going to carry over for the rest of the year? And and he's going to be able to hit his forehand with that kind of ball speed, that kind of miles per hour on it? And... Um, that was a question that I had exiting the Australian Open. But from there, uh, Novak always kind of takes a big rest in February, and he was not able to play the Sunshine Double yet again because the United States hadn't fully lifted its restrictions yet. Uh, goes to Dubai, and, well, this was in February. Uh, just wasn't really in form. It didn't look like, and he lo- loses to Medvedev this time, uh, where I felt the fitness looked subpar hits the clay and has this elbow issue that that emerges. So loses in Monte Carlo in the second round to Musetia, then to Dusan Lajevic and Banja Luka, and then withdraws from Madrid. So after the two early losses, we have the Madrid withdrawal, and it's, okay, what's going on with that elbow? Rome, another loss to Runa in the quarters, but it, it did look like there were, I guess, some positive signs. But I think the important thing to to kind of talk about and frame here is that while Novak after the Australian Open, Carlos Alcaraz, who is injured in Australia, uh, was was going nuts. He was winning the majority of the tournaments that he was playing. And that is why heading into Roland Garros, he was the favorite to win the title, not Novak Djokovic. That's by some final. By by some. S- well, the, the favorite, if we're going to be technical and we're going to look at what the odds were, then he was just the favorite by a matter of fact. Yeah, but but tell but this. Look, we we talked before that before the Roland Garros. I, I don't I don't recall. Oh yeah, Alcaraz. Oh yeah, he's going Roland. I mean, it was a at at best a 50-50. Well, and and it, and the odds were close too. I'm not saying it was an overall favorite. Oh, yeah, but I don't I, I I'm I'm I I acknowledge the odds making capacities of those who set such lines, but you know, yeah. no one think, oh yeah, Novak and he's just so He's just so 2021 Roland Garros. Fair enough, fair enough. Nobody was writing him off. uh, But I think we need to just talk about that semifinal and remember that, you know, the mindset heading in was that Alcaraz had a really, really great chance because of the surface and because of the form, right? Not because of Novak versus Carlos in terms of any any other metric, but Novak handled that occasion a lot better. Uh, I if I may, on that occasion, I will say, I did think Alcaraz was going to win that match. And I remember thinking that I thought Novak was going to have to play better for Novak than Alcaraz was going to for him. However, something else happened in that match. 
Well, I, I just remember, first of all, I picked Novak to win the tournament. I remember that. Um, he, there was a lot of mystery about if these two guys meet, who's going to win. So it was, it was exciting. Alcaraz was the odds makers pick. Um, and there was a lot of talk about age because of the surface. Um, you know, like, is this the time that Novak finally loses it, you know, and, and the clay is not Novak's best surface, although his, even his worst surface, he's been dominant over the years. So um, the, the fact that it, it unraveled for Alcaraz the way that it did was surprising and a reminder just how good Novak is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think I'll confess, I think I may have actually picked Alcaraz to win the tournament when I did something. And I probably, I'm pretty sure I picked him to win that match. I had no idea what was going to surface for Alcaraz in the course of that match. And that became the whole, the curveball of sorts that was very, really interesting and such brilliant tennis, the first, the first two sets of that match. Yeah. And, and Novak did play a great level of tennis. Uh, as did Alcaraz starting in, I think, in the second set. But um, it, it was really kind of the the physical attached to the mental uh, for, for Alcaraz that kind of malfunctioned. But there was so much hype, right, about in Alcaraz's mind about playing Novak because it, it had been a really, really long time. And Djokovic has an, an aura around him. And Carlitos knew that this was the ultimate test and he got himself hyped up and, and nerved up to a point that was, uh, was going to kind of get the best of him. So I just thought it was Djokovic's mental superiority that ultimately was going to take him through that, um, match, no matter what, um, just in comparison to his opponent on that day. Crushes Tsitsipas in the final, uh, you know, was was able to find some really reliable patterns oh, you in meant, that match in straight sets. You mean rude? Oh, rude. I meant rude. rude. Tsitsipas was in Australia. That was, and, and that was, yes. Yeah. Well, little little challenge early in that first set of the final. I believe Rude was leading in that first set. But then, back, yes. yeah, he kind of, but the uh, the fitness aspects of Alcaraz, I mean, that, and that, that really surprised me that set you know again i and i don't like making predictions but i remember i'm pretty sure i thought alcaraz and the tournament and he was the man of destiny barely you know not conclusively and then novak just the physical and mental fitness and and yeah it's and alcaraz had to learn something about how do i manage my energy for big matches and he learned it pretty and, quickly yeah not to jump too far ahead but i think the conventional wisdom was okay now that novak got through this one um when he wasn't the favorite uh well surely he'll just roll at wimbledon and and you know this is it's debatable whether this will be a good surface for alcaraz or at least as good grass um as as some of the other surfaces and of course you know the the opposite happened or or, or the unexpected happened yeah it was it was a total flip in in terms of what you'd think the how the surface would affect the matchup Novak hadn't really been challenged at Wimbledon either for for a long, long time. Um, and Alcaraz, before he won Queens, which certainly added some intrigue and some interest in terms of his level, but uh, Alcaraz was extremely, vastly inexperienced on the grass and had that loss to center at Wimbledon 
the year before. Um, Alcaraz, I mean, you know, Djokovic again looked really, really good throughout Wimbledon. Uh, dropped the the one set to to Hercotch and uh, but he beat Sinner in straights and he also lost the first set to Rublev. But yeah, I, I think you're right, Amy. It was just a complete reversal. But Alcaraz was able to learn. Look, any great rivalry, lessons are learned and and things kind of go back and forth because if you don't win, you learn. And it wasn't, I don't think it was a tactical adjustment. I think it was a mental adjustment larger than anything that Alcaraz was able to make after Roland Garros. And he got his mind in a place where he was able to enjoy the occasion. And uh, and Novak made some crucial mistakes in that final that maybe could have uh, turned it the other way. And then ultimately when Novak kind of wasted those opportunities and Alcaraz had a, a lead in that fifth set, he was ruthlessly good. Well, there are moments, Novak leading in the second set tiebreaker, right? Misses some fairly makeable backhands. Um, break point at some point early in the fifth set, I believe. It's a high kind of forehand volley overhead. And they mm-hmm. are, see how thin the margins are at that mm-hmm. level. In particular, nothing quite as cruel as that at a place like Wimbledon and the grass. And and Alcaraz, yeah, Alcaraz learned a lot. He, he learned a lot. That's what impressive very impressive i mean this guy's won two majors by the by the time he's 20 on two different surfaces let's consider uh what he said in the 60 minutes interview now when alcaraz beat me it pissed me off so much that i knew <laughs> i needed to win everything on north american soil so not only is he returning to the united states uh for the for the first time in a couple of years because of the COVID restrictions, but he's also coming off of a loss um, that he clearly used to fuel him. He goes to Cincinnati. He meets Alcaraz again. He's sick from the heat uh, in the first, like for, for a set and a half in that match, just because it was a, a really oppressive day in, in Cincy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then ultimately gets that break back. And then they play this, just this incredible back and forth match. Um, just an, an unbelievable classic that Novak is somehow able able to come through, Amy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, as much as I love to talk about tactics, and I I do remember a couple of missed forehands in the uh, Wimbledon final. Novak in the 60 Minutes interview, he doesn't really go to tactics, does he? Or or technique or technical or I really had my serve that day or anything he goes to his motivation as a human being the mental game things like that and that is really where he excels Um, and his motivation was I was kept out of the United States and now I'm going to come in here and just kick butt all over coast to coast so um, yeah yeah I, I 
I learned a lot from the 60 Minutes interview about what's going on inside his head. And as much as I like stats, data, tactics, technical, things like that, it's really what's going on in his head revolves around the mental game and recentering himself after certain thoughts and also his motivation. I agree with all that. I think also for a 60 Minutes audience, he's not going to talk about um, cross-court down-the-line patterns and service direction. And I think, But I think he's very good. I've, I'm so impressed at how Novak kind of organizes his thoughts too. You know what I mean? To to see what he's trying to address about this point about his motivation. And and look, and we also know if he was talking to like a, a teaching conference, he could then dig into a layer about point construction. It's just remarkable. And you see, you could see in that interview that uh that passion in him, that engagement and that desire. And it's it's funny to me though, when people when I hear things, I mean, what the motivation is is interesting. Where he gets it. I don't understand why anyone would ask that because to me, it's like, I'm really good at something. I'm still, I don't, I'm not injured. I like it. Why would I stop? You know what I mean? It's like, when you, why, why you keep going? He enjoys it. And it, and these, and these little exiles he's had from parts of the world, such as no sunshine double have probably helped him on the durability front. But doesn't every, not every athlete, but don't so many athletes look for something that, is going to provide that chip on the shoulder. And sometimes it's not a result. Sometimes it's, he said this and that was disrespectful or the media doesn't believe in us. Like we hear these things all the time in sports. I think Novak is as good as anybody at finding something, whether it be uh, something in the record books that he's chasing or, uh, you know, saying, oh, they, they, they wouldn't let me play last year and I'm, I'm coming in this year and I have to, perform because of that, or Alcaraz beat me at Wimbledon, find something to give you a little bit of an edge, right? An edge, yeah, an edge point as a sub-tactic, but I think in the macro, it's kind of like, this is what I do. Yeah. This is my chosen craft that I've been doing since I was five years old, and I'm going to squeeze as much juice out of it as possible. And Yeah, you need to, of course, we all to have a, a clip on the locker room, right? That was the football thing. The other team said we're no good, right? So I, gotta- I, I think it's fair to talk about motivation with regard to Novak because he himself has admitted from at points in his career suffering from a lack of motivation and needing to rally himself. Um, it's just one of those things that when you get older, you get better at at certain things and and tapping into the motivation is obviously something that he has improved on as the years have gone by. And also... I want to say the the match like he played in the Cincinnati final, that is the kind of match where motivation is going to matter more more so than anything else because he, he was in a position where it was not fun for him out on court. He did not feel well. He was yeah. down a set and a break. Like that's yeah. the kind of match where if you're not, if you don't really, 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 really want it, you, you give up, right? And, and every pro, plenty of pro tennis players will say, that, that this has happened to them before where they don't feel well and they stop trying to win the match. Um, they're professional about it, hopefully, 
And and it's Cincinnati. I mean, no all due respect to that tournament, but he's won it and before. And um, you're you're staring down the barrel of the U.S. Open in a couple of weeks. So I do remember feeling amazed at how much he really had to want to win that match. And I'm thinking to myself, it's freaking Cincinnati Novak. Don't do anything to yourself to put yourself out of the U.S. Open, but that's just, that's not how he thinks. No, see, I think it's like, do everything to yourself to win the U.S. Open because Cincinnati will be, the U.S. Open will be won in Cincinnati. And, and we'd ha- I would have to say, the Cincinnati final is kind of the touchstone match of his 2023 and that it was Cincinnati, mm. not at a major. But Not that's- Roland Garros. Not the Alcaraz not, match? Not, not the Alcaraz win. The Alcaraz match was the thing that ended on a TKO, didn't it? I mean, it kind of was like it ended, but it kind of like there's a statement to that, but it kind of was, it's kind of one of those things where you can't help, you feel bad for both of them, for Novak, for not being able to, you know, for seeing what was going on with Alcaraz, for Novak, yeah, he ended up winning it and he, and he went toe to toe with the young contender, but the Cincinnati thing was conclusive. And I know it was a two out of three set match in a, in a, thousand in a master's thousand instead of a major but to me if i looked at novak's 2023 i would say that cincinnati told a lot of his story in i'm i'm very like biased toward the grand slams like because i love the grand slams and i just think that they're the tent poles of the sport like we talked about but i think the signature match was actually the win over sinner at the atp finals having lost to him a few days prior uh, that was impressive to well, me. That, that and, was my, remember I mentioned performance yes. of the year earlier? That's yes. what I gave it to. Yes. Oh, signatures. Well, that's a that's an interesting one too. Yeah, after losing to him in the round robin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's go on to the U.S. Open. Draw was really good. Draw was kind to Novak at the U.S. Open. Uh, certainly up until he, he had to face Medvedev in the final. And Medvedev is, you know, that obviously who you play in the final really isn't about draw. Uh, but Daniil on a hard court after this incredible performance over Alcaraz, uh, we were kind of gearing up for what what we thought was maybe going to be the first good Medvedev Djokovic match at a major because you know when they played the last two times they were kind of straightforward. And look, the second set was really interesting set of tennis, and Djokovic was down five three in that set. Medvedev changed tactics, started to wear him down. Uh, but ultimately, Novak, um, he used his broadened skill set and was unbelievable at net in that final, won that one in straight sets. Down at least one set point in the in the second set, too, yeah. correct? I mean, a point that we talked about in in some depth about passing such selection. And uh, yeah, what a, wow, that's there there's a touchstone signature moment to that one too. I mean, because if he loses that second set, that match becomes extremely different. And then he he wins that second set, goes up two sets to love, and pretty much takes care of it. And again, a lot of it's a lot of a lot of great filing. Great filing, not that he's fielding difficult passing sets as much as running that play. Wide in the deuce court, forehand volley to the open court again and again. And and he needed it. He needed it at times because there were there were moments in the match where his legs uh, we're, we're very tired against Medvedev. That's who. That's what he does to his opponents. And Novak had that play to be able to win short points at his disposal. I was disappointed that 
Alcaraz lost to Medvedev in the semifinals of the U.S. Open because I had been to a few of Alcaraz's matches in person, and I thought the guy was just primed. I mean, he was playing so well. And then we would have had this epic, you know, final, and and it would have been really interesting and, and to see the chapters unfold. But Medvedev played out of his mind. Uh, Carlitos made mistakes and got into to a bad headspace and then didn't have a good game plan. And we didn't get the final that I was hoping for as a fan. Um, and then it was just, in my opinion, it was just easy for Novak. Well, as I mentioned, straight sets over Titi Pass in Australia, straight sets over Rude in Paris, straight sets over Medvedev at the U.S. Open. And we already talked about the Simmer, Sinner uh, ATP Finals match, and it, it was on a recent episode. We don't need to cover it in this one. Uh, that kind of wraps up our, our going through Novak's year. Is there anything, because I, I think a lot of people cover the other stuff really, really well, uh, but just on the court, like tennis, X's and O's, uh, between the lines, is there anything that stood out to you, Joel, about the way Djokovic played, went about his tennis this year as a whole? Better volleys. Better volleys, the technique, the deployment, the comfort in that part of the court. You just see, you see just the ways Novak's such a, a 7% a year, adding new parts to his game, new parts, better versions of things, and uh, the continued refinement of skill there. I was impressed with uh, the pace, the pace of his shots and the weight of his shots, given his age. Um, talking to some coaches at the U.S. Open, as I always do, I catch up with people and I say, what do you see? What do you see? And early in the tournament, a couple of them said, I think the the shoe is about to drop with Novak. Like, yeah, he's he's amazing. He's great in all aspects of the game. But I think maybe the pace will finally start to come down. It didn't. In fact, he was hitting with more pace than he ever has at moments. So that really impressed me. And I think you pointed that out in January, Amy, when we were talking early on about Novak in the early part of the year. I mean, in early 23. And so that 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 continued well remember he he gained some weight and then he had the injury in australia and he just started going nuclear on his forehand on a very regular basis and flattening it out and i mean it's always been such a control shot the forehand uh you know not not that he didn't have any juice behind it but you know he he never obviously very very consistent great depth uh, pinpoint accuracy, but I think this was the year where he started reaching back for a little bit extra and started to value the ball speed a little bit more. Um, you know, maybe at the expense of errors sometimes, but I mean, if you look at how he played center, for example, in that ATP finals, like the aggression on the forehand, the intention on the forehand was to do a lot of damage proactively and as soon as possible, which was kind of a, a different flavor to go along with the volleying to go along with the serving. I mean, he's just a more offensive package now. Well, I think he sees how he is so methodical and disciplined that he adds something, enhances a part of his game, gets it locked in, believes in it, go. You know, it's like, I, I think I think anytime he, that guy plays indoors or on a, you know, fairly 
at a hard court, he's just going to be letting it fly. It's just that there's the adjustments and he's comfortable, the feet lock it in and just let it rip baby. Particularly now that he's playing some younger players, like uh, uh, the, the sinners, the Alcarezes, these guys are hitting pretty big. He's yeah. not going to just, it's, it's different than when he's playing his, the peers who he came of age with. Absolutely. All right. I want to get to the 60 minutes interview. Um, I'm just going to read off some of the, the main takeaways that I had from it. And then uh, Amy, take take it where you will uh from there mm-hmm. uh so the first the first thing is on mental strength uh he corrected john wertheim and said it's not a gift it is not a gift it is trained and one of the things he talked about was conscious breathing as just an example of one strategy something you can practice to be stronger mentally uh, he also rejected the idea of staying positive uh he he said no it's, it's better to accept the doubts and the emotions then move on reset don't just stay positive, get negative, and then move on, uh, which I thought was very interesting. 2019 Wimbledon, he talked about, he sees it as a match that he was stronger mentally. You know, the stats favor Roger, but he peaked at the right moments. Uh, he talked about crowd support, something we've talked about a lot. Uh, he said, yeah, I learned to thrive in hostile environments, but I do prefer support. Uh, he has no political aspirations. You know, we're always kind of curious about what our three might want to do uh, post-tennis and he did say that at the moment, he's not thinking about politics. Uh, then the, the thing I said about the Alcaraz loss a little bit early on is also something I wrote down that he just seemed to take that as you know extra motivation for the remainder of the year, in addition to um, you know coming back and coming back to places that he wasn't allowed to play uh, the year prior. So Amy, what stood out to you among that bunch? Everything you said, I also enjoyed the discussion of the 2019 Wimbledon final against Roger, where he kind of acknowledged that Federer in some ways was the better player, but not really because the person who finds a way to win and use the unique tennis scoring mechanism to his advantage really is the better player that's tennis uh but i really enjoyed and and i thought it was very respectful of roger and i thought that roger would probably listen to it and smile um so i enjoyed that very much i enjoyed the discussion of being next to rafa in the locker room Mm. and having and the the um the b-roll shot that was used to cover that portion of the interview you see like a low angle shot of rafa jumping all over the place inside the locker room and what you know how at first he was intimidated by that but then he learned over time um you know what you do you rafa i'm gonna do me and he got stronger mentally because of that. And I too really, I, I almost got a little teary or I got chills or something when he was talking about, look, it's not all positive all the time. You can't just positive self-talk, be positive, be positive. Sometimes negative thoughts do creep in. And rather than trying to push them out, you maybe just acknowledge them, live, allow yourself to live with them for a second and then recover. And that is the the mental thing that is practiced. He didn't say with meditation, but I know he meditates. So um, that was really like valuable advice to anyone on the planet who plays tennis. I just want to follow up on on the Rafa thing. I'm 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 glad you brought that up because I should have. 
I copied Rafa um, in that respect. That is something that I 100% as a very young player saw him do, and I said, oh, okay, I should do that. Meaning when it's, when it's time to spin the racket, M or W, serve or receive, show your opponent you're ready. Show them you are, in a tennis sense, ready to kill them. And it was something that I, I completely copied. And so I thought it was amazing that Novak said not only that he learned to you know, not be intimidated by Rafa doing it, he also learned to do some of his own things to show his opponent that he's ready to go. So yes, you know, there could be an external benefit of intimidating your opponent. There's also the internal benefit of, of convincing yourself that you're ready to go. Um, and that, that pre-match, you know, before the first point, that, that ritual and that intensity, uh, I, I thought that was amazing because it reminded me and it, it, it made me remember as a kid that I copied Rafa and I, I would do a lot of jumping around and staying intense before the match also. I love that. Wow. That's good to know. I think, okay, that, that's, that's good stuff. I think that's, that's important. That kind of things we learn from these people and how all three of these guys have things that people can actually learn from. And I think it kind of humanizes them. It shows how great they are. And Novak, obviously so incredible. And, but his kind of like peeling back the hood and showing us, yeah, this is what it takes. These are, these are work habits. These are training habits. These are disciplines. These are practices. And in that sense, that's something that's kind of the, the neat appeal of tennis as a spectator and participant sport, mm -hmm. you know, that we can all try these things. I'll keep that in mind, Gil, the next time we play. I hope you <laughs> jump I, I, Yeah. Well, not so much in practice. Okay. <laughs> all right. Why not? Um, why not in practice? Yeah. Practice like you play. Yeah. That's right. I guess you know, Jimmy so, Connor said to me once, Jimmy Connor, he said, if you play every match, like the big match, when the big match comes, you're ready. Yep. So it's kind of work I habits. That. I love that. Okay. All right. M or W. Well, let's get, <laughs> let's get to the, uh, the man in question, Rafa Nadal, who uh, has announced his return date, which will be in Brisbane before the Australian open. The way he's talking about his comeback is very different from any other comeback that he's ever had in his career because it's always been yeah i'm coming back to win majors right that, that's why that's why i do this work that's why i i go through the, the tough rehabs coming back to win and this time it is very specifically i'm coming back so that i can finish my career right i'm doing all of this hard work because i don't want my career to end in a press conference i want it to end in a big stadium playing tennis. Um, so it's very different in that respect. I think mentally that's been notable for me, Amy. Yeah. I, I wish that Rafa had done a 60 minutes interview. Cause I'd like to know exactly what's going on in, inside his head as well. Um, I don't want to say that, you know, I don't want to say what his motivations are because I think anytime Rafa gets on a tennis court, he wants to win the match, you know, and, and it really starts to funnel down to that. So, um, you know, as Joel likes to say, you know, Rafa didn't want to end his career in a press conference, but he may not have a choice, you know, that it's so, um, I don't want to talk too much about motivation. Um, I'd rather just talk about the video you know? right, but, no, but let me, let me, here's why I think it's important because there's a very, there's, 
it's going to be interesting to see what the effect of this is because he really has depressurized this year more more than he ever has right to say i'm coming back because i want to play tennis and not because i want to win more majors and i want to win the biggest titles even if he does want to do that right to frame it like that he's he comes to australia with no pressure i mean it's very it's it's a little bit Federer 2017 esque not that roger was talking about oh you know 2017 this could be my last year uh, but just the idea that there are zero expectations on Nadal when he comes back. And Rafa, with the things he's putting out in public, is making sure that that's the case. This is not us speculating. This is not us three uh, or, or me saying, oh, Rafa's just coming back um, to retire in in the right way. This, these are the things that he's saying. Uh, so I'm I'm very curious and intrigued to see how that might affect him mentally, probably in a positive way, um, because he's depressurized this year. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Well, but depressurized, you know, this is why I love writing about a sport. They're not politicians. You, th- you think three weeks from now he's going to remember what he even said from that? He'll say, it's like, it's like I remember a few it's years ago. It's a mindset, though. But isn't no, it a well, mindset? But Gil, he hasn't, not to parse words, he hasn't said quid pro quo, this will be my last year. He said, it could be my last year. You know, the thing is like, he didn't even know how well the hip procedure was going to go. He didn't know the type of player that he'd be coming out on the other side. And he's still finding that out. So, you know, as with Andy Murray, when he, quote unquote, retired or tried to retire or said something like that. Um, it just all depends on, I mean, these these guys are, are champions at living in the moment at not knowing what tomorrow will bring. And when tomorrow comes and tomorrow becomes today, then, then they face that. So I don't, yes, he has taken off expectations. He's depressurized. He always does that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think Nadal is still finding out what he's capable of. And this may not be his last year. He said could. Yeah. No, no. So we're uh, in the- 100%. I just, I just think it's interesting that he's been, he's taken that approach to what he's putting out into the world. And, and I'm not saying it's a strategy. I think that's actually how he feels. It that's may well be, but it's a yeah. This is all the kind of part fits in the, the the attempted orchestration of the end of one's career, the attempted orchestration, and you're like one banana peel or or or, or, recur, or drop shot retrieval from okay. Next statement, next tweet. Like yeah, let me say my thing. Let me say a thing. Let me set some bars. Get people talking in a way that okay. Now I got to go. Like okay. Now I, now I got practice. Now I got more practice. Now I have more practice. Now I have matches. It's like. That's like Pete Sampras used a great word. He says it's commentary, commentary, just which was words, stuff, stuff said. Not, I'm not saying it's it's an illusion. I'm not saying it's it's meaningless. I'm just saying it's kind of like words to let you know, like, yeah, um, OK. And then back to action, back to performance, which yeah. is okay. certain in a sport. We don't know. And neither does Rafa. Well, we'll. we'll have our chance to kind of assess before next year how we think Rafa might do or what are the major factors that will 
uh, kind of affect his performance. Um, you know, we're all obviously just so excited to see him play. We did get a look at some footage and Amy as our, <laughs> our resident practice footage analyst, uh, who, who, uh, looks things over with a fine, uh, what is it? Fine tooth comb. Yeah. You've never yeah. used a comb before. No, <laughs> it's all, it's all just with the fingers that does the trick for me. Um, I know, I know. Hard to believe. Um, Amy, what did you think of Nadal's footage with Fees in Kuwait? Overall, I'd say an, a net positive. Um, it, it was better than I thought it was going to be because I saw um, some really good forehands in there, like signature Rafa forehands. I will say that his movement is a little bit ginger, especially his side to side movement. Um, so I was like really watching the hip. But that's natural. That doesn't mean he's feeling pain or anything. He could be like just testing it and nervous as, as anybody, you know, if you've sprained your ankle and then you get back out there, you're like, oh, is this thing going to hold up? So um, overall, I think it's it's really positive. I want to see more. But um, it was such a great feeling to see him crush a couple forehands. The timeline is great. The fact that he's, you know, just... I, it looked like full intensity to me, um, and he's got what two, three weeks of of full intensity uh, ability, uh, and who knows how if how long he's had. I guess the a hundred percent green light. Um, I, I'm just encouraged that I, I think, unlike last year when he came back from the AB and it was rushed, I really do feel like he's had a, a surplus of recovery time for this, for the hip, the abductor thing. So that's really positive. And I, I agree with everything you said from a tennis standpoint, Amy. That's kind of what I thought too. Great ball striking. All right, movement didn't look uh, as um, as fluid or as effortless as maybe you would want. But um, that's kind of the thing that I guess he has a couple more weeks to improve. And also the, the thing that's going to be the key to his season is his movement. Next show, we'll be kind of looking ahead to, to 2024. We look forward to that, and that'll do it for this episode of 3. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.